Welcome to the Today Dreamer podcast, a project that's dedicated to helping you cultivate your own practice of presence. My name's Michael and I'm your host. I'm a meditation teacher, a musician, a mentor and a conversationalist that's currently based in Melbourne, Australia. And it's my hope that through listening to these conversations and through these kind of shared spaces that you'll be able to feel more empowered and more enabled in participating and contributing to the blossoming of the emergent world story. So hopefully you find some clarity through these chats, some inspiration and motivation. This is a part two of a two-part series. So if you haven't yet, I would like to kind of point you to part one to have a listen. And if you have, then you know, sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode. Before we do get into it, I would like to invite you to pause with me for a moment as we have the space to just be through the practice of an inhalation and exhalation. Feel free to focus in on one object in the distance in your field of vision or you may even like to close your eyes for a moment and as slowly slowly and gracefully as you possibly can there's a nice gentle open invitation to begin to inhale through the nostrils noticing any subtleties of your experience You might like to just pause for a moment at the peak of your inhalation. Before gently releasing just as slowly and gracefully on the way out. There's an open invitation to continue this process as we lead into part two of this conversation. You might like to continue all the way through. (laughs) Yeah. Let's get into it. So what what I've, um, the way I've uh, worked out uh, teaching on the judgmental mind, which I've been doing for about 20 years, and it came out of about four years of closely examining my own judgmental mind in different contexts. Mm. You know, uh, partly working with a psychotherapist, uh, some of it was in a meditative context, working with uh, a wonderful teacher, John Travis, who was a, mentor, a really close mentor t- to me for four years. And what I came to see from a lot, just you know, a lot of looking, including, you know, I, uh, I read the, the, the really the kind of the breakthrough was when I, I worked with mindfulness of my own judgmental mind at a two-month meditation retreat, you know, looking at it over and over again, 20, 30 times a day or more, and doing that for 60 days. And so what I came to see, and it, it's been you know, refined because I've kind of developed a whole curriculum for, for this, What I've come to see is that what what I'm calling the judgmental mind, and we'll talk for the moment 
about being with unpleasant, you know, the, the judgmental mind in relationship to the unpleasant. What I've seen is that the judgmental mind is connected with some kind of noticing, sometimes discernment linked with reactivity. Mm -hmm. And so, and from the earlier discussion, we can see that the reactivity in the case of uh, being with the unpleasant is in, is in relationship to something that was unpleasant or painful. And what I came to see was that um, the judgmental mind strangely is a kind of defense mechanism because I'm actually, I'm actually using it and I'm not experiencing what was, what was painful in my experience. You know, so for example, uh, a very important experience in my own learning process came when I was uh, a co-chair, or let's say I was, let me, let me back up. I was working with a boss in the organization where I was working and I met with him, you know, I don't know, once every two weeks or something for a year or two. And I found, you know, and I started experiencing, I thought that he wasn't listening well to me. I'd say something and he would often change the subject. And I would notice myself, um, it took some time to really notice the dynamics, but I, over time I could see clearly, I would withdraw emotionally from the, this, you know, hour and a half conversation to a place of emotionally distanced moral superiority, where I would be, you know, I'd be out of the discussion, one not really there, but I'd be judgmental of him. And uh, over time, this was with some guidance, I came to see that there was a painful experience for me. I thought he's not listening to me. I thought I wasn't being heard, but I didn't, you know, uh, I didn't experience the, it as painful. I just went right to being judgmental. And I wasn't really aware that this was painful for me. What I did with some guidance is I, uh, you know, I could, you know, it took a little bit of time to see the dynamics and that this was coming out of me thinking he's not listening to me. And then I would, you know, I could notice, okay, this is something that's there in many parts of my experience, not just with this guy, but that thinking someone's not listening to me is, uh, you know. And so the patterning, yeah. As, it's a pattern, as we would say, it's an issue. <laughs> <laughs> right? and, and so then I could start to actually start to look for, uh, try to be mindful when that happens, and try to track, okay, see what it's like when he doesn't listen to you. And then I would notice, oh, that doesn't feel good. And I could actually tune in and feel that it's painful when I actually could do that and tune in in the moment and feel it was painful, I would not go to being judgmental, but rather I could then actually uh, be more in the moment in a non-reactive way and say something like, um, you know, um, the, the point I just made is important to me. Can we come back to that? Right? In other words, I could respond to the situation non-reactively. And it came from being able to uh, actually touch what was painful. Now, in some situations, we can do that, like 
in something analogous to what I described. But this really helped inform like a general strategy for working with the judgmental mind, which was to see that the reactivity is there because typically because there's something painful that we're actually not touching. In some situations, we might be able to go back and touch touch it something like what I did to, you know, to, uh, I don't know, I hear, I don't know, I hear, I hear uh, something in the news, you know, you know, maybe I hear something about Ukraine, right, which is happening right now, you know, the, the war in Ukraine. And I get really judgmental towards, let's say towards the Russians, right? And in large part, that being judgmental is helping me not to feel the sadness or the sorrow or the grief or the anger there. You know, maybe the anger might be more there. And so I could, if I'm well-trained, I could actually go back. Oh, I think this, me being judgmental is telling me I need to really sit with the pain. So you can see how this would be a huge issue for activists, right? Mm -hmm. Activists who are dealing with painful social situations all the time, if they don't actually touch the pain, they will be reactive on the basis of something important. They have discernment. They're noticing, let's say, injustice or something, you know, something not okay, but they will go off and be reactive, which could result in them demonizing their opponents, you know, or, you know, you know what I found with actually working with activists is that this you know, probably most frequently results in them being uh, reactive and judgmental towards fellow activists. That's probably the most common. But you can see how, so, I, so it becomes a strategy from, from, from studying the judgmental mind this way. The, uh, the understanding of the judgmental mind is, is that it's some kind of noticing linked with reactivity. The reactivity is there because there's something unpleasant. And so if I can somehow go back and work with the reactivity, you know, a major way is of touching the pain that leads to the reactivity, which sometimes can be done easily. Sometimes it can take, you know, when we're looking at some old pattern, maybe from childhood, it can take six months, a year, three years to really touch that thoroughly and transform it. But the formula becomes transform the reactivity and take whatever is valid or intelligent or reflecting discernment in the judgment and use that for the purposes of compassionate action. You know, like in my example with the boss, I could notice, it's important for me to notice that he's not listening to me. I wanna keep that, even though it's the basis for my being judgmental. I wanna transform the reactivity, keep that insight and then respond to him and saying, I, you know, this issue is important to me, let's deal with it. Or it could be, you know, in the activist context, it could be working with my own uh, grief towards the situation or my own anger uh, and working deeply with that so I can then approach social transformation as much as possible without reactivity. And so if you look to, for example, the, uh, 
you know, the uh, way that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. guided the civil rights movement, I would say his approach is deeply, deeply aligned with, uh, with what I'm mentioning. He said that the heart of our movement is the transformation of anger, which is understandable, right? Right, you know, we have received injustice. And he, you know, he was coming from the perception that if we just let the anger and the rage operate without wisdom and compassion, it will be self-destructive, right? So that, that's an, you know, an example at the level of activism. So the formula becomes transform the reactivity and you, and then go back to whatever insight or discernment or noticing there is. And sometimes that will be more obvious and sometimes not so clear and use that for the purposes of skillful action, compassionate action. So you could see, okay, Dr. King is saying, work with your anger. Your anger is coming out of profound experience of injustice. Keep that understanding but then work for transformation, right? Something like that. And so, I, you know, or in the example with my boss, I could respond skillfully, or, um, you know, I could be, you know, like when I was working with this, it was at the same time I was coming uh, significantly more into uh, being a Dharma teacher, being a, we would say, a Buddhist based teacher. And I was giving a lot more talks and sometimes I'd be very critical of my own talks, but I was doing this at a point when I was right in the work, you know, I was fully in the working with the judgmental mind. And so I would use different practices and, and you know, I noticed myself getting really hard on myself 20 minutes after I finished a talk, you know, you know, that wasn't a good talk. And I would actually do a practice which would let me actually uh, there are practices I, uh, you know, I've used and developed that would help me actually touch that underlying pain. So I would, you know, I got to the point where I could actually, in a very short time, notice myself judgmental, go into my experience, notice, oh, when I go there, oh, I'm sad. I wish I had prepared more stayed with that sadness. I could, at that point, I would, had been doing a lot of it. I could stay with the sadness for five minutes, 10 minutes, just hang out with the sadness, which we could call the pain of the situation. And uh, something like a child having a good cry, that would, the judgments would dry up. They wouldn't be there anymore. Drying so up in the, the tears. That, that, yeah, that, that example gives, gives sort of the formula, like I say, you know, I've been doing it a lot. I've been doing, you know, I was coming after 25 years of spiritual practice. And so there's a background. And so sometimes it can be relatively quick like that. And sometimes if we haven't done that kind of work or if it's very deeply embedded in let's say material from childhood or trauma or something like that, then it can, it can take a uh, a lot more time, although we can get to the point where it's something like what I just described. Mm. Yes. Um, yeah, I appreciate you sharing that. I had um, and just what comes up for me when you're mentioning these practices, a couple of things. I, I've had a recent experience where I've been able to um, meditate on 
I was just like laying on the floor into a feeling of, of anger that I didn't really know was present before. I was yeah. like, oh, this is actually anger. And yeah. um, as soon as I, it, it happened a lot quicker than five or 10 minutes. It was like, as soon as that place was touched, it began to, it began to change. And for 40 minutes prior, it was just intensifying. So right. yeah, it was very, and, and it was almost like a, a real physical experience. Like the, my whole body was shaking and there was this kind of, right. it was stra quite strange. Yeah. But uh, yeah, but, yeah that's, that's basically it. I mean, basically being present to whatever's happening in the long run is healing and transformative, mm. you know? And yeah. so, yeah, because you it's know, magical. It feels like magic. It's magical. And anger is also, uh, an emotion that's that particularly is amenable to that because you know uh anger often covers over some other emotion psychologists often call anger a cover emotion mm -hmm. and so if you stay with anger you know like in my example you could come to um maybe come to sadness you know and uh i had one retreat where i was angry for uh 10 days in a row for 16 hours a day Sounds like a good time. <laughs> and I, it was in the workable range. It wasn't too much. Okay. That, that made it possible for me to basically practice mindfulness of anger for all that time. And mm. it was so illuminating because I found that, you know, very often, you know, that the anger when I stayed with it would shift into sadness. And sometimes the sadness when I stayed with it would shift into love. So, you know, a lot of social justice people have said that anger beneath anger is actually love. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, uh, it, it's, uh, and, and if we can actually touch the love, then activism becomes totally different. You mentioned this, you mentioned this kind of um, reactivity that takes place in terms of, we're talking about this kind of context of activism. Um, this reactivity that takes place and and then you know we've we've gone through this process of of touching um these these spaces and then um maybe eventually getting to a space of love um it seems to be the case for me that at, at some point it, it's like well what's next and there is a period of not really knowing where to go from that um uh, where, where to go from love um, not where to go from love, but uh, almost yeah, like, of course, we don't want to go anywhere from love. <laughs> yeah, definitely. It's that's more of, I think, what we were talking to earlier about the yeah. the not doing, but there's a sense of um, once a space has been touched, maybe it hasn't got to the point where it's transformed <laughs> into this kind of immense sense of love, but it's, it's almost like the reactivity. Um, it's almost like the doing from that point is automatic. So there's, it's, it's there. But it can't. Sometimes it's not so clear what to do um, when we step step out of the reactivity. I guess. Um, oh, I mean, let's say I'm 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 angry and reactive, and then the and then the uh, you maybe do an inner process like what you described, and the reactivity falls away. Yeah. So I'll give you maybe a personal example, and then. It, okay so i've got this this it, it kind of intertwines with a few themes that we've explored but there's this idea of kind of um ambition and and um trajectory 
I guess. And um, a feeling of judgment that comes up for me when I feel like I'm, I'm in some way, um, I don't, I don't want to say on track or not on track. So I think if we zoom out enough, it's, it's always seems to be the same thing, but there's something that there's a judgment that comes up like a beating myself up around um, that. And I've yeah. noticed this kind of stepping away from that and, uh, and, and, and kind of becoming more comfortable in the space of, of not needing to know or not need, not having to have the answers yeah. of, of where to go. And, but there's, there seems to be, um, yeah, there's a couple of things that I've noticed happen. One of them is that when it does time, when the answer does kind of reveal itself, there is a sense of, um, there's a sense of then the inertia for not having it for that little while, you know, it, it's a, a gradual buildup before, before there's movement, if that makes sense. Um, and I'm trying to tie this back into, I'm, I'm running around in circles a little bit, but there was this sense of kind of moving through uh, this reactionary stage. And then, but then there's that period of the not knowing, and that can feel quite um, for me personally, like there's a tension in that space. So I, I guess I wanted to kind of voice that and see what you had to say, but maybe that would yeah. be useful as an example as well. Yeah, let me see if I can can understand, if I understand you uh, accurately. Um, so let's say that you you there's some kind of uh, judgments about uh, your own trajectory or this approach is working out or not working out. And you can, you know, you're having some judgmental thoughts related to that. And then you sort of bring, let's say, awareness to that and they fall away. And you're in a place of, and you invite a kind of not knowing as to, let's say, what's happening with my trajectory. But then you're saying that that is, doesn't feel entirely comfortable. Is that accurate to what you're well, there's there's this kind of I guess there can be a comfort there's a comfort in the idea of what we mentioned earlier about the beauty of each step and then having that yeah. focusing on the presence rather than having to know I guess yeah. but then yeah. there's there seems to be a discomfort with the sense of planning and um with the sense of it's, it's like planning or, or checking in whether whether the steps yeah. are in the right direction it's still it's still there i guess um it's, it's still, still kind there. of come, comes well, and first, goes. first of all you know um where i've gone with the judgmental mind work it's it really is related to um going into the depths of how we understand or or how we identify as a self and some it go it's the, the uh, conditioning that virtually all of us received from family and society when we were young about, you know, doing things okay or being okay, being good is so thick. Mm -hmm. And so uh, a lot of what I described about the judgmental mind work is probably the first, you know, it's, it's very significant, but it's, it's uh, how we initially approach it. And then over time, we, we uh, go more deeply into what I and also a number of uh, psychologists talk about as limiting beliefs, mm. which typically are formed in 
childhood. They can be formed later. And they're, they're going to, uh, uh, they can be very, very active. And it takes generally a long time to see what they are and transform them. So many of us have some version of perfectionism, for example, you know, which, you know, the limiting belief would be something like, I need to be perfect or I need to be perfect to receive love or something, some version of that. And that, you know, when I, sometimes when I do show of hands, when I'm teaching, it's like a third of the people or a half have some version of that, right? And they're different versions. And so those are gonna be extremely persistent. And we're not talking about a weekend workshop. Okay, took care of that one. <laughs> mm. Right. Those are those those are where you know that you know we can uh, work with them, and they can maybe diminish, and we can carve out free more free space. But those generally take time, you know, for for most people. I mean, not for everyone, you know. So uh, yeah, you know, I, I think of one person I worked with had very difficult childhood where his father and his brother, his older brother would gang up on him mm -hmm. and they would tell him, uh, you're gonna mess up today. And they told him that when he was starting maybe seven or eight and they, it was, I started working with him when he was in his late fifties. He had for years and years, every morning, he had the thought, I'm gonna mess up today. It came from, from childhood. And we could we could have done it, you know, we could call that a limiting belief or maybe use a little different language to describe it, but that was very strong with him. And uh, and yet because of neuroplasticity that the you know neuropsychologists tell us about, uh, these can be transformed. They do, they uh, they get transformed not by eliminating them, but by developing, as it were, alternative neural pathways. And you were saying earlier about kind of the way in is in a sense, the way out as well. And there's a depth on yeah. the way there and there's a depth on the way back. And what you're saying now is really linking to what you're mentioning around um, and this idea of the social, social conditioning and maybe like a contemporary map that's needed. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's right. And, and maybe just one point to tie yes. it back to what we're talking about. Yes. If there's, you know, talking about how is the trajectory of my work going, th th these are going to, for most people, tie into pretty primal material, right? Mm -hmm. And so you can, you know, I don't, I don't know if you think that way, but for most people talking about how is my work going, how is my trajectory going of my work, my life, my relationship, whatever, mm -hmm. this is pretty primal. And so even if you do a certain amount of inner work and then try to say, okay, let me just be open about what happens. The conditioning is strong. And it's gonna, particularly at moments of vulnerability, it's gonna say, hey, shouldn't you pin this down a little bit more? I don't know about this open stuff, <laughs> right? And so uh, it's, it's fairly insistent. And nonetheless, cultivating openness and equanimity is a valuable part of things. And, yeah, and I, I, maybe to link up with, with the question you asked, I have, I have found this kind of conditioning in myself. You know, the, the, I was saying that the, the you know, the uh, beginning of the close work with this happened after 
25 years of spiritual practice, right? And uh, I've met people, you know, I, I've sometimes taught our long retreats at Spirit Rock where we people do intensive meditation for a month to two months at a time. And I meet people who, you know, who have done practice for years, deep commitment, often very deep insights, who definitely have residues of the judgmental mind or of these limiting beliefs and so forth. And so it's, um, I, I have found that for most people, one has to do specific practices that get at this kind of uh, conditioning, call it psychological conditioning or social conditioning, it's a, it's a mix, but that, uh, so I see the work I've developed on the judgmental mind as complementary to traditional practices, which uh, you know came out of a very different setting. There wasn't the same kind of uh, contemporary psyche. The practices were, you know, they get at a lot of things, but they don't necessarily, let's say, get at the limiting beliefs. I've, again, I can see that from my own experience, my own practice. In a similar way, I think traditional teachings don't necessarily get at different forms of social conditioning around gender or race or ethnicity or uh, sexual orientation or age or religion, whatever. And so I have felt a need to develop these well-developed curricula that give people developed practices that get at uh, psychological and social conditioning and people's material in those areas and you know have uh, reflected on what a contemporary map of what we might call awakening looks like you know thinking that how do we integrate the traditional uh, map with forms that are developing in our times and I think this is part of the kind of the uh, the zeitgeist as it were of our times yeah. A lot of people are drawn by this, whether they know that know that or not. Yeah, I feel like people are, I think I've just caught a glimpse of people working on this kind of a thing um, in different spaces. Yeah. With different languages and, and in different ways. And it's yeah. it's quite an exciting kind of time. Um, it's powerful know. because yeah. it's, uh, you know, in a simple way, we could ask, uh, you know, what practices do we need that gets at our stuff? And then we have to identify what's our stuff. <laughs> and, and then, you know, if we identify that and then we ask, well, okay, how do traditional practices get at my limiting beliefs, let's say, or my, you know, my conditioning around race? And well, they help in some ways, but do they get at it in a, in a full and transformative way? I would say no, that we need specific contemporary uh understandings and practices that help us do this this i guess um maybe a place to kind of begin to close things off would be around um thai's statement the next buddha will be will, will take the form of a community that's right and i yeah. really felt that was a powerful sharing that you provided i really appreciate that um yeah I, I, I was wondering kind of what ideas thoughts feelings visions comes up for you in your heart and your mind when you when you read that or when you when you speak those words you know about the about what about what Thich Nhat Hanh said yes 
He said the next Buddha will be a community. Um, yeah, I mean, Thich Nhat Hanh has been a major influence on me. You know, and I, I studied with him a number of times and visited Plum Village. And uh, so he's been very significant for me, partly as the pioneer of socially engaged Buddhism, even you know, the, one of the persons who coined the very phrase uh, engaged Buddhism mm. and coming out of his experience in Vietnam and out of the, uh, you know, out of the experience of uh, the Vietnamese uh, Buddhist communities, probably starting in the 1930s. Um, so, yeah, it's, um, I think what comes to me is that there's uh, there there's this sense of the importance of uh, the vital importance of community, you know, and and this is something which has sometimes been overlooked, certainly in Western Buddhist settings, where uh, although there 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 are many aspects of community. I think it can play a much larger role in our practice. You know, so I've been very interested in, we haven't talked about it, but I've been very interested in the practice of wise speech, speech and communication as a fundamental part of practice and of the sort of the relational dimension of practice. Often in the way Western Buddhism has been framed, not, and by Western Buddhism, I should say more coming out of centers like Insight Meditation Society, Spirit Rock as juxtaposed with maybe some of the, you know, like the, uh, the Thai or Burmese uh, temples where there, I think there always has been more of an emphasis on community, but in, um, in some of the, uh, the settings uh, that, I, that I mentioned, like Spirit Rock, Insight Meditation Society, uh, you know, um, community has been there, but it, it often has been sort of second. And the notion is that the ultimate nature of practice is meditating by oneself, maybe in a retreat, but meditating by oneself. That's where things happen. And so I think uh, Thich Nhat Hanh is really bringing out the centrality of uh, communal practice and the community dimension of practice. Uh, and I think that, you know, manifests on many, many levels, you know, uh, both in terms of making relational community-wide practices more explicit, developing them. You know, for example, I, I work with, I've, I've been teaching retreats this year and last year on Buddhist practice and transforming racism. And that, you know, there's a certain amount one can do by oneself, like reading, study, watching one's mind, but so much of it needs to happen and has been happening when I've been teaching it with groups you know, on a group level. So that's, that's one level. I think that's a very important dimension. Uh, I think Thich Nhat Hanh's also suggesting that uh, there's, uh, we might say, um, awakening evolves. <laughs> mm. That awakening has a different nature in our time than it may have had 2,600 years ago. That's mm. interesting, right? Mm. That there's an evolution bo uh, both about who awakens, 
and what the map of awakening is is like and so that's that's so there's there's a sense of it uh, being different and I, I think i'd be you know maybe one of the last points i'd make is that even though i would say from my own perspective the next buddha will be a community or a sangha i think also that's not to that's not to take away from the fact that individuals can awaken. So, and that uh, maybe the full awakening is as a community, but there can be deep, deep levels of awakening as individuals. And that, so in, in other words, there's both continuity with the traditional model, and then there's innovation. Both, both are true. Thank you for your time today, Donald. Well, it's been a pleasure. It went very, very quickly. Yeah. We had, was... I had a sense of uh, not being in time in the usual way. <laughs> I think that, that feels like a, yeah, feels like a nice thing to hear. Thank you for your participation in this episode of the Daydreamer podcast. I'll leave links on our beautiful guest in the show notes section on the website where you can check out all their wonderful work and offerings. And if you're interested in working one-on-one with me, feel free to head over to todaydreamer.com and get in touch. Also, if you're a part of the Today Dreamer family, which really only means that you've listened to one full episode and you'd like to go deeper to at least one full episode, then um, and you'd like to participate in some group meditation sessions online that I'm offering for free only to listeners of the show, then please send me an email through the contact form on the website. I'll add you to the list and um, I'll give you all the details to that and any other upcoming kind of offerings around helping your development in this space. Thank you so much again. And until next time, be present, feel alive and yeah, be well. (laughs) 